It's May 22nd, 2011, and this is The Candid Frame. Welcome to the show. One of the things I've been talking about with you and other photographers is making the choice to photograph things that you are passionate about. It's an important decision because those strong feelings not only get you out there to shoot, but also keep the momentum going when the rest of life's challenges seem to be getting the best of us. Today's guest, Rick Namias, is a photographer who has been making just such a choice and has been using his camera to explore stories about agriculture and immigration. Having a passion besides photography itself can often lead to a body of work that challenges both the photographer and the viewer. So sit back and enjoy our conversation with Rick Namias. Rick, welcome to the show. I'm so thankful that you, you contacted me and uh, gave me an opportunity to take a look at your work, particularly in these two books that you ended up sending me. It's beautiful work, and you are you identify yourself primarily as a documentary photographer. For, for, for people who don't know exactly what that is, how do you define a, being a documentary photographer? Um. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. It's really, um, you know, nice to to have somebody who's who's looking at the frame in so many different ways. Kind of, uh, I don't know, enjoy this work and and want to give it a you know give it a a look on on this podcast or a listen to at least. Um, I, I see documentary work as often long term projects that take a fair amount of research that need to gestate that have many moving parts as opposed to photojournalism, which is often something that has got to be captured in a very finite time frame and is often tied to a very, um, you know, important, immediate current event. Um, for me, I come out of a writing and research background. So to me, I actually really enjoy that process of gestating an idea because uh, as a writer, I found that, you know, ideas come many times a day. The ones you choose to pay attention to are quite important and you have to kind of allow them to repeat on you, kind of wash up on shore several times and over several months, even sometimes several years until you actually kind of pick it up and say, you know what, because it's come back to me so many times, I need to honor this. I need to look closer at it. And for me in documentary work, that has um, has kind of been my signal. If a project keeps coming back and I can't push it away and get it out of my sight, I don't necessarily have to shoot it, but I have to look closer at it. Your your first project that in this represent represented this book called the Migrant Project um, was born from from what I read from some very strong feelings that you had uh, regarding class, regarding you know, the nature of agriculture in this country. Talk to me about what those feelings were and why you chose to direct it in this particular way, in the form of doing a photographic documentary project. 
Sure. Um, the you know what brought me to the migrant project, I think, was probably born for me many years ago as a as a young kid growing up in the San Fernando Valley of L.A. Which for people listening to this that haven't been there, it's it's the bedroom community of Los Angeles. It used to be home to about forty thousand acres of citrus itself, and used to be a farming community, but has since become kind of strip malls and parking lots, and you know often very well-to-do homes, and. I find often the disconnect for us living in Los Angeles and in the Valley with both agriculture and what it costs on a human level to feed this country uh, got to me more and more. And it, it was all kind of came to a head just post 9-11. Um, I was working for um, Ariana Huffington as a writer, actually, working on, on multiple issues. But I wasn't necessarily finding my issue of passion. I mean, I was getting very political with what we were writing. I was getting very educated on various things. But for me, uh, food became this huge comfort source, I think, on a literal basis and metaphorically and almost spiritually after 9-11, where all of us experienced shifts in our lives and reassessed the importance. And as I started looking at food and cooking food and actually considered probably uh, possibly being a chef at one point and getting... Um, my training as a chef. Um, I also had been schooled in the work that Edward R. Murrow did at Harvest of Shame, and where I saw amazing work coming out of like uh, Don, Don Bartoletti's work for the LA Times about immigration, and other photographers who had covered migrant farm worker issues, I didn't actually see kind of a three-dimensional representation of the folks who were out there. So I spent a few months researching it. I left my work with Ariana and realized that the food equation was for me where my passion lied. You know, I read Fast Food Nation, as many of us did at that time, this was very influential. I started doing outreach to community groups like CRLA, California Rural Legal Assistance, which kind of had uh, it's got about 20 offices around California. And when I started looking at the numbers, you know, that this is a workforce 1.1 million strong just in my state. Our, our farm workers feed about half of the nation, or a little bit more than half the nation, of what they eat every day in the way of produce. They're staggering numbers. And this is a, a population which, when I started the project, interestingly enough, was about 50% documented, 50% undocumented. So there's this big tug of war about, you know, you're illegal, you're not legal. And then when I actually came back a few years later and we did the book, I updated all the stats and re-examined all of the data, and that number had shifted to almost two-thirds undocumented farm workers versus one-third one documented. And that whole equation was very much in the shadows, uh, or I shouldn't say the shadows, it was, it was very much uh, part of my subconscious every time I did this, because I'd go out and do a shoot, and let's say I'd go to a bedroom community like Oxnard, which was predominantly legal, docu uh, legal um, workers who had lived their lives there. It was a much different vibe than going out to the Central Valley and finding these t these farms that were tucked away, run by like Russian immigrants who actually kept some of these Central American undocumented workers in near slave conditions. And when, when I started seeing the whole scope and the, the multiple dimensions of what what it takes for a million people to live in the shadows, it, it made me mad. It made me passionate. It made me feel like there was a, hopefully a way to bridge some areas of kind of the us and them equation. And maybe mm -hmm. by bringing out some of the cultural stuff they do, some of the stuff they do uh, as families, as even gay and lesbian farm workers, maybe if those faces were brought out in a <clears throat> cohesive photo essay, 
people would have a little bit more understanding of them as people and not just people, not just figures stooped over strawberries when they drive by on the freeway, not just folks who are out marching, you know, on Cesar Chavez Day, but people who are with us 365 days a year and who are living on insanely ridiculous wages that haven't increased in 30 years. At, at this point, you'd had a good amount of experience as as a writer, but where were you in terms of your confidence level, in terms of a photographer, that you were going to be able to pull off what you just suggested? That's a great question. Um, I absolutely had uh, very little. I had gotten into um, NYU's film school several years earlier as uh, a film student based on my photography portfolio, which um, was not documentary work. It was, you know, high school artsy photography, but I guess there was a competence to it. There was a cohesiveness to it. And um, the powers that be there saw something in it that said, okay, this guy should be a film student. But quite honestly, I had dedicated about a decade of my life doing screen screenwriting um, through projects like uh, from the Writers Guild and uh, some, some various studio development stuff. And I had continued to shoot mostly travel stuff, uh, stuff that I had, you know, had a, had some gallery representation on, but it wasn't major. It was very much in the in the background of my life. But I always found the still frame a very comforting place as a storyteller, and just for my own creative journey when I was doing things that were not kind of project directed. I did do some short films where I could know that I could take a budget and a schedule and get from point A to point Z in eight weeks or twelve weeks or whatever. But more importantly, it was something I felt I had to do. And I think it was um, one of the first times, maybe it was the first time in my life, where I really kind of just threw caution to the wind and said, I don't know where I'm going to be in six months. I've got a few bucks in the bank to get me there. I've got some contacts to get me some gear or some, actually in this case, it was really just film. I had um, made some contacts at Kodak on my short, A Fate Foretold which were incredibly supportive. And uh, just the few hundred dollars in film that they gave me for the migrant project gave me a little boost of confidence. I got another boost of confidence from a professor at UC Berkeley who was studying uh, migrant issues, uh, Kurt Organista, who became a colleague and helped get me a small grant here. So like these little breadcrumbs leading up to the project. But to be quite honest, you know, uh, I just, it was me and an icon FE when I dropped into the first um, farm worker camp in Piru, which is tucked away up in Ventura County. And I, I honestly started very small. I'd, I'd go places that I could drive and come back in a day, um, kind of again, hedging my bets in case I didn't see anything on the film when I got back. And ultimately, uh, I'd got in a dark room that I was renting in Santa Monica, and I would have these periods during the migrant project where I would be in, uh, researching intensely and then I'd go out for these like five days of shooting after I had kind of found an area and, and a different range of subjects to capture. During that time, I'd spend about half of it with a community worker or somebody who was down in the trenches and really knew what was happening in that specific community. And then I'd um, spend half the time to get lost. And I absolutely had to make sure that I had unrestricted like an equal amount of time to just find the stories on my own. And many of the images that ended up in the, in the exhibition and in the book are from that time where I really just got lost. And I stumbled upon a guy who, for example, was, you know, gleaning the fields and selling the extra kind of seconds produce to actually make ends meet and send the money back to Mexico. And just his, his image of standing by a produce box and the kind of piercing look in his eyes and the pride 
in his face that I would just see from driving by and stop and talk with him and, you know, allow, allow me to do his portrait were things that for me recharge me. Hmm. I've always found that there's a, a spontaneity in documentary work, no matter what the format is, that, that once you've done the homework, once you know your subject, once you kind of know your tools and you kind of have this, this framework, the most amazing part of it is then cutting loose and just disappearing into the subject. There's just a freedom and a a happenstance that has always been rewarding. And I think, you know, compassion and eyes wide open in, in those moments are absolutely important, but it, it allows you, and I talk about this in the golden States of grace book a little bit in merging with your subject for just a 500th of a second. And you kind of, you, you meld in a way where you, I, I believe if you're doing your work right, you're feeling exactly what they are feeling and they are connecting with you. And there's a trust and there is a compassion that is transferred back and forth. And it's a, it's a place I feel incredibly honored to work in. It's not a space that I feel I can be in all the time. And I, when I look at folks who are doing documentary work day in and day out, my big question is how do you sustain that energy? Hmm. For me, it happens in short bursts, but you know, over long-term projects where you can kind of recharge, come back, download, look at what you got and then go out and do it again. Yeah. One of the things that you mentioned in your introduction to, to the book is the, is an awareness of, of class issues, particularly in terms of the documentary and the, and the person being documented. Yeah. And the fact that there is a disparity between the two and the fact that this person of privilege is making the choice to represent these people who are, for whatever reason, disenfranchised or disempowered or, and they're, and thereby making judgments in terms of how this person is going to be represented to a larger audience, which, you know, is, is loaded in, in and of itself. So how do you sort of deal with that? the nature of that and try to be as honest and truthful with your work and not have your own biases, whether for, for bad or, or good sort of tainting what you're trying to do. I, I really, I really appreciate the question because I think the ethics of what we do and how we do it is, is not discussed nearly enough. Um, with the democratization of digital um, recording in every format, people can now pretty much go out and almost anywhere become a documentarian. But I think there is an internal set of checks and balances that we have to keep doing constantly. And one thing I was very clear of when I got out there, I mean, it was, it was very clear on the first day was here's a middle-class white guy with a camera in a field of people that are, you know, half documented, half undocumented. I could be the INS I could be uh, the ag and OSHA. I could be virtually anybody. But what I was at that point was actually someone that they uh, they were interacting with, and, and there was not necessarily a fair a fair balance of power. So for me, what I did in each instance, unless I was in a crowd setting that was a public space, is I absolutely asked permission from each person. I learned enough Spanish to ask permission before a portrait was done. And to explain as best I could at different stages of the project, of course, that that progressed as I got a better understanding of what the hell I was doing, was to explain to them what I was doing and and hope to do with the portrait. 
Additionally, I would get their address and everybody who had asked for a photograph got one. Um, and, you know, I guess on the back end for me, what I made sure of is everywhere that this work is displayed, although we were not able to do it, unfortunately, in the book, everywhere the exhibition has traveled and it's been to close to, I think, three dozen plus or minus venues around the country, is that it must be displayed as a bilingual exhibition. And it is one of my attempts to try and bring in both the Hispanic voice and the Anglo voice side by side to show us, uh, I don't want to say an equalness because it would be completely, um, complete bullshit if I said we have equal standing and we know it's not true, but to bring these voices at least to the table to talk and to, to look at each other and to speak with each other. I think the, the question you're asking, though, about being a privileged person and, and coming out to document, we always have to remember we have to respect the subject. And kind of getting in and getting those sneaky shots and getting somebody off uh, who's kind of off the cuff, I, I, I can't use those images. And I think when, when, you know, in the off chance that, let's say, I was at a, in Golden States of Grace, maybe I was um, up in Santa Rosa documenting a, uh, a, an Indian acorn festival, and I, I probably grabbed a few shots of people without having that uh, introduction or that permission granted. And I can tell you the quality of those frames are inferior to the ones where there was an understanding of what I was doing and there was a permission given. That said, I think there is still a kind of a, a base inequality when it comes to you going in with a camera and you recording and you leaving with those images. There has got to be a very clear understanding of why you're doing it and how you're going to be doing it. And that's a conversation the documentarian has to have with him or herself. Hmm. And I think it's a conversation that has to be repeated over and over. Because, I mean, yes, we've raised money for farm worker issues with the Migrant Project. We've educated young kids with a curriculum that's built around this. Um, we've, we've, you know, we've done a lot of stuff uh, some of the uh, the ag jobs bill on the floor of Congress has used the images to kind of bring faces out in a personal way. But the bottom line is, if it's helped bring the dialogue a little bit further into the limelight on a repeated basis, because I'm not going away with these subjects, mm -hmm. um, that's worth something. And I think that in itself is how I present the work to people, is there may not be, there, there's not an individual... Um, Oh, how would you say it? An individual um, boost to you for being part in this, but your community's visibility and and hopefully the compassion that I hope to bring out through this work about your stories will, in a collective way, bring this uh, bring awareness to a greater place. And that's where you look at the value. How long uh, did you work on this project? Um, the micro project was shot over nine months. And uh, consisted of about eight or so trips through California from the border down at Calexico all the way up to Sacramento. Um, and it was about 4,000 miles, I think, I logged total in shooting it. So it's a relatively short amount of time. How, how did you find yourself changing your, your approach or your style of shooting as a result of you know, learning more about these people, learning more about their lives, both off the fields and in the fields. How did, how did the story end up taking shape as you started delving deeper and deeper into it? Well, I think I, I allowed my trips to get longer. So there was more of this total immersion thing for three, five, eight days at a go. 
Uh, I started out again very kind of skittish, like I'll do a day or two in Oxnard and come home. But what I also found for myself is that there was this very difficult period, and 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 I'm sure this for you know someone like um, you know Tyler Hicks or people who are shooting Afghanistan and disappear for months at a time into you know war and combat have a have a much drastic much more drastic experience of this. But I in in my own way experienced this unusual kind of decompression after my shoots where I, I allowed myself to kind of disappear into these worlds. I stayed sometimes in the homes or, or in the trailers with, with the farm workers if I was invited to. Um, I was really talking day and night with their community leaders or with themselves to try and get a round idea of what their, their lives are like. Although again, I returned home to an apartment in the on the edge of Beverly Hills, where I would be walking my dog the day after a shoot, and at a stop sign, you know, the car in front of me would be worth five years of migrant wages, um, and it put a lot in perspective, in a very harsh way. I think it also, for me, um, required a couple of days of decompression after every trip where friends and family kind of knew that I had been away and they probably wouldn't give me a call because I wouldn't be particularly communicative. Normally, I'm a pretty talkative guy with, with those in my life and, and very expressive and passionate. But coming back from those trips was really sobering. And I found um, I dropped my film. I wouldn't even want to pick it up for a couple of days. And I would kind of have this this mode of reacclimating to, you know, the first world of Los Angeles versus the third world of the Central Valley. And the crazy thing is, is those were 90 miles apart. They were not on another continent. And that was, um, to me, the adjustment to that never really changed. I think all the way through the project as a storyteller, um, emerging out of that world and going into it actually had almost a ritual to it. Hmm. And, and the point of that word, ritual, uh, let's transition to your other project, Golden States of Grace, which is an exploration of religion and faith. How did that come about, and how did the work that you did in your first project sort of inform your approach to this one? Um, Golden States of Grace grew out of a desire to document ritual and ceremony in, in religion. I, I had double majored in film and religious studies, and I'd always found that the the kind of visceral drive that pushes people into religion and different forms of observance it was just so exciting to me. It was like this this kind of very base action that was, again, a democratizer like food. Everybody, whether you choose to look to a higher power or not, that question confronts all of us during our lives. And it was something that hung around with me for a while. I did some shooting, you know, right out of college, at, you know, at a Hindu festival here and at a blessing of the cars there. And, you know, the work was, was all right. It just didn't have a direction and it didn't have a cohesiveness. And I honestly didn't have the drive to push it uh, any place until the migrant project was done. And I was actually able to look back at that body of work and say, when you take a subject and you slice through it the way that my sensibility slices through it, it seems like it, it revives a passion about a subject. And I had been in touch, um, you know, when I started thinking about what I wanted to do after the Migrant Project, there was a, a, um, a reverend, his name is Reverend Paul Chafee, and he was the executive director at the time of the Interfaith Center at the Presidio. 
And it was really over conversations about the project where I was actually applying for grants for what became Golden States of Grace, but was not getting them. And I was finding myself continually disillusioned in the months doing it, where I was about to shelve the project, where we sat down and had a really frank dinner. And he was my fiscal sponsor. I was, you know, getting the nonprofit um, relationship through his, um, his organization up in San Francisco. And we, we had dinner and he said, you know, what was it about the migrant project that kept you going when you didn't have grants, you didn't have money, and you had no idea what that project would be, let alone be shown? And I said it was finding the humility in those stories of people on the margins that reflect bigger issues back at us. And he said, that's your lens. That's your lens for this project. And it was, you know, as, as stupid as it sounds, it was a total aha moment for me. And it really made me realize, I mean, I left that dinner and I think I spent three or four hours uh, at a cafe just kind of scribbling pages and pages of notes. The title came to me, different thoughts came to me, um, ways in which I wanted to look at things. I think the first group that really kind of landed on my radar was something I read in the LA Weekly years ago was about um, Buddhism in prison as, as a movement. And I thought the metaphor, because I work a lot with archetype and metaphor and that kind of stuff, the metaphor of, of Buddhist monks in their cells tied in so interestingly with prisoners in their cells and how does that interchange work and suddenly the, you know, again, the breadcrumbs kind of appeared. I had an advisor, um, a rabbi down here in Los Angeles who I knew uh, recommended Beit Teshuva, which is the nation's first halfway house for recovering Jewish addicts of all kinds. And uh, I connected with them and, and it was a pretty powerful meeting with their rabbi and their founder and they opened their doors to me for the high holidays, which is, for those of you who know Judaism, is a pretty sacred time to, to uh, document people. And I came back again at Passover. And um, at the same time, uh, a contact up in San Francisco, Lois Lorenzen, who runs the theology department up in, at the University of San Francisco, became a, an advisor. And she connected me with Transcendence, the first gospel choir for uh, transgender individuals. And each of these groups suddenly came to life in a way that they, they didn't just represent their faith, but there was, for me, this really incredible and dynamic intersection of casting a very wide definition of those on the margins. The full project title is Golden States of Grace, Prayers of the Disinherited. And ultimately, it looks at eight faiths and 11 marginalized communities. So we have, you know, again, for example, you've got recovering Jewish addicts in, in Culver City. You've got... Um, elderly dispensated nuns in Santa Barbara who are, who are Christian. You've got deaf Mormons in San Diego. And it was about finding groups that complemented once another in the interfaith equation, but also in definitions of us and them once again with who is marginalized. And my feeling is, quite honestly, the kind of uh, underlying theory in this project for me is that we're all marginalized. I don't care if you were abused as a child, if you've got um, an, an uncle who is, um, you know, got a club foot, if you've got an alcoholic brother or you're dealing with addiction yourself, we all have something in our lives or very close to our lives, which I believe creates a shadow. And this project is about looking at the shadow as it informs our spirituality. It's interesting to see that 
that you yourself were taking a sort of a leap of faith in these projects because as with many documentary photographers you're not making a living from all of this work so you know taking the risk to go out there and make the time to make that stuff happen and then taking the steps and then having the opportunities to network with different people happen as a result of you making the choice um i think is a really important thing to to note when it comes to doing these kind of projects because i suspect there are a lot of people out there who would love to tell stories like this but for whatever reason never take those first initial steps I would agree, and I have to say, like with Golden States of Grace, there was actually there was a bit more confidence. Um, the truth is, the exhibition of the Migrant Project had only shown as a work in progress by the time I finished it. Uh, at it, it showed at a library in downtown Hollywood, um, which for me was was thrilling. It still is is really um, great that it happened, but it was a, kind of a grungy gallery right in the you know the pit of Hollywood. Uh, it was my first one man show. And, you know, there was a pride I took in everything down to how the captions were presented and the maps and the things that, that, that went along with the project. But quite honestly, uh, the financial investment mostly in that project was my time and I think in the framing of everything. When I stepped up to Golden States of Grace, I realized my preferred format was medium format. And that's a much more expensive um, medium to work in than 35 millimeter especially when you don't own a, uh, a medium format outfit. So I went and actually bought a, a, you know, a contacts outfit and had to kind of learn the gear and had to learn the feel of the camera. And I shoot with a contact 645 very much like people would shoot editorial work. Um, it's a bulky camera to do that. It's a loud camera to do that. But I've found that the way I work now, because I've added audio into my work in Golden States of Grace, as a traveling exhibition actually has a couple of soundtracks and it's, it's a multimedia show that I was able to find a routine and, a, and an ritual of, of going out to do these shoots that felt really complete to me. And I was able to be comfortable enough with that camera and that gear so that going out wasn't as scary as it was the first time. Hmm. There was a financial investment, but the truth was I build these things out slowly. I mean, there's a point of no return where you've put in many thousands of dollars or you've set, you've, you've, um, you've, you know, you've pulled the trigger and you've interviewed, let's say a third of your, your, your folks. And that, that's probably the trickiest part. I mean, there's, there's a part when you're doing the research and you're trying to get, you, you want to stay in that gray cloud so that all of the ideas still come to you and you're not locked into a concept or a, a log line or a, a, an idea too quickly. That's a hard place to be. But actually, the harder place to be, I think, is right at the beginning, where you're actually still kind of, you're really fudging it when you meet with your first subjects. You kind of know what you're, you're doing, but you really are just still formulating the concept. It's a much different shoot with that first group, which for me was Bait to Shuba in Golden States, than it was my final group, which was um, Kashi Ashram in West Hollywood, which is a Hindu ashram for people who are HIV positive and dealing with AIDS. The trick was, and that one is, uh, as much as I was comfortable with the gear by that time and the concept of the project, I had a very finite time to interview their guru, who uh, is a very, a very unusual and eccentric woman who, you know, said she'd give me about eight minutes and it turned into this kind of 80 minute interview. And I just had to, again, deal with 
dealing with the audio gear and shooting her in this restrained time uh, to get what I needed to get. But all that, all that to say is that I, I would say that the beginning of these projects, once you're through the research and you have the confidence that there's an idea there, is that kind of embryonic stage mm. you know, where, where things haven't quite solidified, but you've got to go and represent it to a funder to a fiscal sponsor and to your subjects and have them kind of throw their lot in with you and say, yeah, I'm going to do this. Yeah. Well, one of the other projects I wanted to have a chance to talk, talk to you about was your more recent projects, the last days of the, of the four seasons. And this is the documentation of a much smaller, smaller community. And I really liked what you were doing here uh, in terms of, just your approach in terms of shooting the audio as well mm -hmm. as the still imagery, uh, hearing those sounds, hearing you know the, the the radio recordings, hearing the voices of the people in the in in, in the uh, who were uh, whom you photographed, it gave it so much. It made the presence of that place that much more palpable. Thank you. I I appreciate that because that that's very much what I felt there. Um, the Four Seasons is, or was, I should say, because it's gone now, was the last of the bungalow colonies in the Catskill Mountains uh, for and uh, created for and by Holocaust survivors. And the Catskill Mountains was this mecca for middle-class Jews in um, 50s, 60s, 70s, until it went into rapid decline once jet travel became very affordable. What was really interesting is that the Holocaust survivors never felt welcome in recreation in many far forms of their lives, so they created these little colonies. And a friend of mine who's a reporter for the New York Times, Andrew Jacobs, found them in 2005, and they were holding on to this little property, uh, this fading, kind of decaying um, colony of you know little little cabins and then one or two main houses. But you could see as these people were aging, this community, which was so unique and so tightly knit, was about to go extinct. And as a documentarian, it was one of those moments where I felt I had to jump in and put aside anything as far as a restriction of time, although it was 3,000 miles away, and, and capture these voices and these faces in a way that showed the, the kind of counterintuitive look at this community that I felt would be so important. The, the Catskills are an iconic community very much in the way that you might look at some, um, you know, whether it's farm workers or um, different forms of recreation where, where you know, uh, Americans go to get away from it all. And this was literally their last couple of years there. And the people were such an interesting counterpoint. You'd walk by and hear radios playing Edith Piaf or something from another era. But these were folks that were getting up and dancing to Gloria Gaynor's uh, I Will Survive on a Saturday Night Till Midnight. And that, that kind of um, paradox was something that kept pulling me in. But at the same time, as you walked around the property and, and heard these different sounds, there was no question that this was going to be the end of this place and it would it would go away for good and i i never had the opportunity in, in my entire creative life to to witness that mm. and and in a sense i i really felt a duty to to do it in the fullest way possible um we're, we're currently working on the book of the four seasons and it's um 
in a sense, almost like a scrapbook of that time. And it's including, again, their voices, like Golden States of Grace. The book includes prayers from the, the, the folks. This includes bits of conversation I've had with the, the survivors and what their journey, not just as survivors were, but to create a community that was now crumbling and fading away before their eyes. What was it like for that? Because they had been through, you know, to hell and back in the Holocaust. But now in their 80s and 90s, they were watching this thing that they had built with their own two hands literally disappear. And and what is that like to go through and, and what kind of feelings does it bring up and uh, how do you cope with that? Mm-hmm. I think one of your the most interesting choice that you made in with with this entire series was returning there after they had finally said their goodbyes to the place, and you began documenting the abandoned space, you know, the yeah. chairs, and and that just made the loss that much more significant for me. Um, and I and I think it was a very very savvy choice to make because I know a lot of photographers probably would not consider going back once the people had left because they think I think the the assumption was well there's no much story left, but your choice to go back kind of revealed the the space and their connection to it in a way that was very very unique and special despite the fact that there weren't people presence present in all of those images. Um, d- what did you have in mind when you went back there? Did you have an idea that that's what you were going for or you just felt pulled or did you just feel pulled to go back there one more time? I really felt the need to see it without people because my first two seasons were, I I caught these folks at the peak and then at the end of their seasons. And again, we're, we're talking about octogenarians who were incredibly lively, but again, they, they filled this space with their energy. There was a smell of food, baking, um, you know, um, uh, bread rising, um, cookies. I mean, there was just, there were so many smells. There were so many senses that it fired on that I, I felt the need to go back and see it without the people and what remained. And the truth was it was a very difficult shoot. It was a short one. I was only there a few hours, uh, on that final, that final day It was October, 2008. And the truth was that it, it, like the farm worker work, it haunted me for a couple of weeks after because I felt I was actually visiting something that was now, it was now gone. It had passed. And um, like all of my work, as I do a project, I kind of start wallpapering my studio with images, uh, work prints. And it's, without knowing it, it seems like each um, project brings something in a visual motif, Golden States of Grace, for me, when I look back at it now, it's hard to find a frame that doesn't include a hand. And in prayer, that just seemed to come up in all kinds of ways. And it, it, not just your literal prayer pose, but ways in which people contacted each other. And hands became a motif in that. And in, in um, the Four Seasons, even when I was shooting with people there, the empty chair, which I really appreciate you you know, noticing, became an unconscious visual motif. There were definite times where I saw a chair. There's one photograph in particular that's on the website that's a huge print in the show that is a one of these like 1960s era, you know, looking um, chairs. It's not just in its architecture and design, but also in the, the print of fabric that, that wraps it. That to me, it said so much. It's next to an open window with a torn curtain. And as I went back repeatedly to the Four Seasons Lodge, 
I found in my work more and more empty chairs. And it was at first subconscious, I think the first shoot, is I'd have a group of the survivors on the lawn and they sent they kibitzed in a circle. They'd sit there for, you know, hours on end, telling jokes, trading stories, uh, you know, revisiting the, the Holocaust and their time in camps in a way that they couldn't do with anyone else. But there'd be like six chairs and there'd be four people. So there'd be two empty chairs. And then the next time I came back, it would be a whole, uh, there'd be two people and four empty chairs. And then when I came back that last time, all I kept seeing were the empty swings and the empty chairs and the emptiness of it. But the clear and very definite reminder that people had lived here and people lived here in a way that was celebratory and embracing of life. And so there was this patina that seemed to be left behind and you, you literally could still smell it on that last visit. It just was, it was muffled by the sense of, of decay and, and, and disappearance. Well, it's an amazing uh, body of work, and it's even more extraordinary since you had so so little time to actually put it together. You would, you would never think, um, taking a look at the images. Um, how do you assess yourself as a photographer and a storyteller now after having completed these and so many other projects. You know, does that make any sense? No, it makes a lot of sense. And as you're saying it, it's like I'm sitting here really kind of trying to be very candid. And the truth is, each project, you go back to the very beginning. Uh, I honestly think there's a vast number of photographers who are vastly more uh, talented than me and, and are better shooters, so to speak. What I have come to value in myself and what I feel, at least from the feedback I get from people who I meet who see my work and get in touch about it, is that there is a combination of humanity, compassion, and um, storytelling in that, where if there's something I can do that might be different than what's out there, is an ability to slice through a community or a subject and show the multiple layers that people might not see if they're looking at the whole cake. And that in those layers are minute details, whether it's the empty chair or it's a hand with the seed in Golden States of Grace or, or it's a little boy in the vineyard just kind of looking out at you and his eyes are almost the same as the grapes around him. There's something in those details, I guess, that, that do capture a humanity and a sense of the story, um, which I now trust I can do. And I trust that given the right canvas, giving myself the creative space and choosing my subjects with, with whom I have a connection or, a, or, a, or a deep respect for that, um, that I can bring these things out. The truth is that I would never think that, um, this stuff is going, I mean, I'm in a few collections and I'm, I have people who collect my work. I don't, I don't really try and look at, you know, where I fit into the, the broader photo documentary tradition. I feel incredibly lucky that I've been able to, in an outside the box kind of way, run the gauntlet of finding the money I need and the different financial models to make this work. But, um, I'm just happy to keep being able to do it. But I, I do have to say that each time I get to the beginning of a project, I find there it's like you have to learn how to ride the bike again for a little while. Mm. And the first part is finding the confidence 
that you can run that marathon because these are marathons. I mean, whether whether it was nine months to do the migrant project or, you know, it was three years of shooting and research and whatever for Golden States of Grace, it was three years for um, four seasons. And now, you know, the truth is I, I still continue to uh, have to kind of market the work and talk with curators and, you know, I'm dealing with publishers and, um, and, and all that stuff is you finding the confidence again to get it up again and get all the way to the finish line is difficult. Mm -hmm. And it's very, it's very draining. And, uh, I mean, last fall when, um, when golden States came out, it was a, an incredibly rewarding project. Cause I think for me of all the things I've done so far, the book for this and the way it was very meticulously designed and printed and put together is something I'm deeply proud of, but it also took a great deal of energy. I mean, I was just spent at the end of 2010. And um, again, getting up the energy to start that process again for the four seasons has been, um, it's not been easy. I mean, and at the same time, I have my freelance clients and I, I run a nonprofit, which uh, is all about hunger. And that takes a great deal of my time. Um, I feel though that being put in a place to have kind of created and finished three of these projects says that there's a reason, there's a reason for that. And I need to keep going. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't say that I'm going for the good of any greater, you know, reason, except for these are stories I need to tell. And I've had the incredible honor. And I, I think anyone who's, who's shown their work, even to a small group, when somebody is moved or somebody connects with, with that work and lets you know it. It's a, it's a, it's an incredible honor. And I mean, I've, I've had that happen on, on more than a few occasions. I mean, I can remember once the, when the migrant project premiered as a museum show, it was at the Fullerton museum in orange County in 2003, about six months after it was shown for the first time at uh, this library I talked about. And this, that, you know, there's a very nice reception and, and I gave a small gallery talk and people were leaving. And I noticed there was one guy lingering on this one photograph and he came over to me and he was in tears and he was in tears as he explained, because he had, his grandmother was a farm worker and she would never speak with him about what she went through in the fields because of the shame. Mm -hmm. And somehow that this project for him reconnected him to his own story and his own family and the sense of pride that he wanted to own but never could. And I mean, I just, I didn't know what to say to the guy. It was the first time anyone had ever really presented me with that kind of, um, I, to me, it's a place of honor. And to, to be able to own that you have affected even one individual, let alone maybe hundreds or thousands with your work, is an extraordinary place to be. And it makes me feel like there is an onus to highly value what I'm doing and feel incredibly privileged to do it and, and keep doing it. That's great. Well, the last question I always ask is I ask my guests to recommend or suggest another photographer that they, they recommend our listeners uh, discover for themselves. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that person be for you and why? Well, I would have to say, and I'm going to go a little bit outside the box mm. of um, probably a little surprise, is Minor White. Mm. who was, you know, at the helm of um, so much early photo community. I think his work's exquisite. I think it's underplayed and underseen. 
And for someone who was in um, the circle that he was in, I just don't think he ever got the notoriety and appreciation for both an aesthetic and a deeply human portrayal of um, of the world around him. Well, that's a great, great suggestion. And Rick, where can they find out more about you and your work? Well, I guess the easiest place would be um, my, my main website, which is ricknamias.com. And it's just my name spelled together, R-I-C-K-N-A-H-M-I-A-S, ricknamias.com, um, which is the hub for the three websites, which is The Migrant Project, migrantproject.com, Golden States of Grace, and Last Days of the Four Seasons. And, um, you know, the, the books are on Amazon, and there's a limited edition hard copy of um, Golden State of Grace, which comes with a signed print, which which I'm so thankful we did that. I'm sorry we didn't get a chance to talk about it, but the process of creating a limited edition book was brand new to me, and that that's something that's been really special and selling well. And um, The Last Days of the Four Seasons had its premiere uh, late last year, and we're finishing up the book, and hopefully we'll get that traveling sometime in 2012. Well, thank you so much for your time and for, for being so generous with your, your time and with your work. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for joining me. Please remember that I'm accepting images for a limited run podcast in which I will be providing critiques of images based on ideas I talk about in my book, Chasing the Light. You can join the group on Flickr and I'll have a direct link in the show notes. If you have any comments, you can email me at thecandidframe at gmail.com. You can also visit our website at thecandidframe.com where you can also find a link to make a donation to the show. Martin Taylor, who is the editor for this episode, can be found at theothermartintaylor.com. And this is Ibarian X. Perello, and this is The Candid Frame. Check out this show and more great photography podcasts at photocastnetwork.com. Photocastnetwork.com.